Romans chapter 5. One of the largest churches in America is in Houston, Texas. And the CEO of that church, uh, Mr. Joel Osteen, I won't call him a pastor because pastor implies shepherding a flock. He fleeces the flock. Uh, but he is a best-selling author and a multimillionaire. His net worth is somewhere between 40 and 70 million dollars. He lives in a 17,000 square foot mansion in Houston, one of his homes, he has many, uh, but that one is worth in excess of 15 million dollars. He drives a 450,000 dollar automobile, one of 20 that he owns. As you might surmise, the Reverend Osteen is fond of telling his church that it is not God's will for them to suffer in any way. Not physically, not emotionally, not spiritually, not financially, not in any way. If you've ever read any of his books, uh, he says things like, uh, because he is a child of God, when he goes to the airport, a parking space always opens up right next to the elevator because God is looking after him. <clears throat> I don't know if he's looking after me or not. I've walked a lot of miles in the airport. But anyway, that's another story. But uh, he tells his church, if you don't have money, like he does, if you are suffering, if you're sick, if you're having trials and troubles, it is either because you are out of the will of God, or you simply don't have enough faith. Now, actually, he's not been at it long enough to really, really reap the benefits of it. Kenneth Copeland, another word of faith preacher in Fort Worth, Texas, is worth an estimated $800 million. He owns a fleet of planes, and during the pandemic, he was telling people that whatever they did, whether they were out of work or not, they needed to send tithes to his organization because he needed the money. Now let me ask you a question. Does the Bible really say that we should never have trials? That we should never suffer? That there should never be any tribulation in our life? The truth is, trials are a fact of living in a fallen world. And we need to learn what God's Word tells us about how to handle them. The problem is, what the Bible says about trials is just plain nuts. I'm sorry, but I mean, did you read what we read this morning? We rejoice in our sufferings. Are you there yet? I must confess I'm a little short. We rejoice. Now, that, that's a mouthful. We might look at that and say, well, you know, Paul probably got a little carried away. I mean, you know, he might have been prone to hyperbole. You know how people are. They get all excited and all pumped up. And then they say things that, you know, are really over the top. But then we look at the words of Jesus who said this, Blessed are you when people insult you 
and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward in heaven is great. And it's just not Paul and Jesus. Listen to what James says. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The Apostle Peter is of the same mind. He says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, listen, keep on rejoicing. To the degree that you suffer for Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When you trace the experience of the apostles in the book of Acts, you discover they actually practiced this strange response to trials. When the Jewish Sanhedrin flogged the apostles, in Acts chapter 5 we read this, the apostles, they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. When Paul and Silas were illegally imprisoned, beaten, put into a stinking, nasty, damp dungeon in the basement of a nasty jail, what did they do? Well, they called their lawyer. They wrote their congressman. They complained that we're being... No. But about midnight, we're told, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The author of the Hebrews told his readers, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. Now listen to this. Accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Suppose the United States government decides tomorrow that anyone who follows Jesus Christ is going to have to give up their home. Suppose they come to your house and serve you uh, with papers to that effect. Will you joyfully give up your possession? I, I really get amused at, at some of the things I see in going on in our country today. I, I'm, I'm not surprised at all by where the culture is going. And in Canada, it's even further. I, I saw a, a video yesterday of uh, the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, going into a church and closing it down. I loved it because the whole time they're shackling the pastor and leading him out, the congregation is singing, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. But we let the least little thing happen and all of a sudden, 
we're persecuted more than the apostles were. You know, somebody laughs at us, and it's more than we can handle. What are you going to do when they come and take your property? You read the Bible. Obviously, Mr. Osteen does not. But if you read the Bible, you cannot escape this strange response of rejoicing in trials. It is the uniform teaching of the New Testament. But maybe you're like me. Maybe that's not really your standard response. Maybe you haven't quite gotten there yet. Some of us could say perhaps that we don't complain about our trials. We grit our teeth and we stoically endure them. And a few of us may even be able to say we rejoice in spite of our trials. We've got troubles, but in spite of that, we're still rejoicing. But how many of us can honestly say that we rejoice in our trials? That the trial itself brings rejoicing? I've got a ways to go, I have to admit. So there's something here, I think, for all of us to learn. Paul is continuing to enumerate the blessings of being justified by faith. You see that? Here uh, in his words, more than that. Probably he is answering an unexpressed objection. Paul frequently does that. He anticipates what his readers are going to ask about what he has written. And he anticipates that someone's going to say, Paul, you're saying to me that you have peace with God and that you now stand in his grace and you have access to God. And that you rejoice in the future hope of the glory of God. So why isn't God protecting you from trials? Why have you been flogged? Why have you been imprisoned? Why have you been stoned and left for dead at Lystra? Why did they have to let you down in a basket from the wall in Jerusalem to escape death? What, what is all this about, Paul? Uh, why didn't God protect you? If you're the object of his love and his grace, then why are you not enjoying a trouble-free life? So Paul is showing why God brings trials into the lives of his saints. Why do we suffer? Why do we have trials and tribulations? Because through trials we grow in endurance and character and hope. And that hope will not disappoint us because even now God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. By the way, notice here in, in the first five verses of Romans 5, Paul covers the whole Trinity. We have peace with God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ and God has given us his Holy Spirit, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God subsisting in three persons. And each, each person of the Trinity plays a role in our salvation and our preservation as God's children. I think, first of all, if we're going to understand what he's saying here, truly understand it, so that we live this way, we're going to have to understand that you have to have the proper perspective in sufferings. 
rejoicing in our suffering, our tribulation, just really is not normal. <laughs> Dr. Thomas Schreiner, distinguished professor of New Testament at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says in his commentary, this is an astonishing statement since future glorification is prized precisely because afflictions are left behind. We look forward to being glorified because there'll be no more affliction. So what does Paul mean when he says we rejoice in our sufferings? I want you to think about some things this morning. Number one is rejoicing in trials is not our default response. If it were, everybody would run around rejoicing because everybody has trials. Everybody suffers. Everybody has problems. So it's not an automatic default response. Even among Christians, grumbling about our trials is far more common than rejoicing in them. And literally, the word here is boasting in them, glorying in them. Whether it's, a, whether it's being caught in a traffic jam, or we're late for an appointment, or something major like cancer, or the death of a loved one, our knee-jerk response is not to rejoice, but to grumble. Over the years, it has astonished me and quite frankly disappointed me about how whiny church members can be. Some of them just whine and gripe and grumble all the time. We had a man here one time that nothing, nothing was ever right. The lights were too bright, the lights were too dim. It was too cold, it was too hot. He didn't like the fact that the deacons wore a beard, some of them. So I grew a beard. And he didn't like me. He didn't like it because we used canned music. And he didn't like it because we didn't sing old songs. He jumped me one Sunday and talked about, we never sing the old songs. So we had a young man here who was a student at Bryan then, who was the associate pastor, the music director. I said, next week, make sure you sing, Be Thou My Vision. So the man came out to the door and I said, you like that old song this morning? <laughs> we didn't sing no old song. I said, it's the sixth century. We can't get much older than that. But he complained about everything. Do you know how, do you know how discouraging that is? Now, and, and I'm talking about being around believers and complaining like that. What do you think he looked like to unbelievers? A man that complained and grumbled about everything. We see that with the children of Israel, though, after the Exodus. They, uh, they're delivered by God. You remember, God sends all the plagues on, on Pharaoh. Then he leads them through the Red Sea, drowns Pharaoh's army when they try to pursue. They've, they've only gone three days in the wilderness. And they don't have drinkable water. And what they do? Did they jump up and down and say, Praise God! We're going to see how God's going to deliver us again. No, they grumbled and want to kill Moses. They've just seen some of the greatest miracles the world's ever seen since the creation. And they grumbled. So the Lord told Moses how to make the water drinkable. The very next chapter we read, the whole congregation is grumbling again. 
wish that we'd have stayed in Egypt. We had plenty to eat there. So God graciously provided manna for them. Every day. All they had to do was go out and pick it up. They didn't have to work for it. Didn't have to go shop for it. They just went out and picked it up. And what did they do? They grumbled and they complained. Their history was 40 years of constant grumbling, constant whining. I think they were probably Baptist. Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that their story is a warning to us that we should not grumble in our trials as they did. Philippians chapter 2 Paul exhorts us to follow the example he set when he was falsely accused, when he was beaten and falsely imprisoned. He said this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God of reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights, in the world. We live in a grumbling world all around us. But you want to know how people will see your light and bring glory to God? Don't worry about raising the dead or speaking in tongues. Paul says just quit whining. That'll do it. When you go through your trials and you are not grumbling and complaining and griping about how unfair everything is, Paul says, yep, you're going to shine like lights in the darkness. You want people to know you're a believer? You want people to know that you have been wondrously saved from sin? Quit grumbling. That's one way to do it. But it doesn't happen automatically. It requires a deliberate focus. We, we have to focus on it. Now, secondly, rejoicing doesn't mean suffering isn't painful. The Bible does not say that we have to put on a happy face and grin like an idiot and pretend that in spite of all of our troubles, we're just praising the Lord when in fact we are deeply hurt inside. No. Later on in Romans chapter 12, Paul will give us this instruction. We with them that weep. He doesn't say exhort those who weep to rejoice in their trials. He said weep with those that weep. Paul acknowledges the tension when he describes himself in 2 Corinthians 6 when he says he is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And he goes on to say that his emotions were kind of all over the chart but he had God's comfort undergirding all of Paul's trials was a genuine joy in the Lord. And so he could be sorrowful, yet rejoicing, acknowledging that the pain is real, acknowledging the hurt is real, and yet still rejoicing. The writer of the Hebrews says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see the same thing 
throughout the Psalms. The psalmist is in a situation where he despairs of life itself. His enemies are trying to kill him. Sometimes he'll even question God. Why God hasn't delivered him or why God has delayed his deliverance. He expresses the anguish and the pain and he cries out to the Lord. But at the end of the psalm, even though he's still in grave danger, he is filled with joy and praise to the Lord. He is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So there's nothing wrong with feeling sorrow and pain and grief in the midst of a difficult trial. We don't have to deny those in order to make us to appear more spiritual to others, but through our tears and our pain, we should be sustained by the promises of God. We know that God is sovereign over all things. And this trial, this pain, this suffering could not have come into our lives had God not permitted a belief in a sovereign God will go a long, long way to helping us to rejoice in our suffering. But rejoicing in suffering does not mean that we deny that the pain is real. Rejoicing in suffering is possible when we remember that God is using trials to sanctify us. Notice what he says in the last part of verse 3, knowing, catch that word, knowing, we know some things, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. It is vital that we have knowledge that God is using our trials to sanctify us. That God is using trials in order to enable us to grow. Some of you know what the, uh, the King James Version says here, verse 3. It says, tribulation worketh patience. I said for years, if you are impatient like I am, don't pray for patience. Because the only way to learn patience is through trials. The only way to have endurance is to suffer. You can't, have, you can't have endurance unless you suffer. God is using our trials to shape our character so that we can joyfully submit to Him. Not everyone grows in the way that Paul describes here. We can only do it if we submit joyfully to God keeping in mind that He is sovereign and that this trial has come into our life to produce endurance so that that endurance will produce character and that character will produce hope and the love of God then will be poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. There's the change. Suffering, literally the word is pressure. The word was used of the, of the pressure required to to break the skin of a grape or an olive so that the juice would flow from it. We're under pressure. Life is pressure. That's why I don't, I don't get so torn up about people who talk about stress in their life. Look, stress is just life. It, it's always going to be there for everybody. How are you going to respond to it? That's key. 
Are you going to grumble? Are you going to complain? Or are you going to rejoice knowing that God, a sovereign God, allowed this trial to come into your life so that you could grow? And listen, I told you, I'm not there yet. I'm working on it. Listen, I'm one of those people who honestly, who honestly has come up to a traffic light and decided every time I get to this traffic light, it's red. I don't ever get it green. And sit there and whine for a minute until I realize how dumb that is. Everybody gets red lights occasionally, you know. So I'm, I'm telling you that I'm trying to get there. I'm trying to get there. I'm trying to learn that God brings these things into my life because He loves me, because He wants to produce endurance in me. John Calvin points out that you don't need endurance if you're not stressed. You don't need endurance when everything is going well. When, you know, when you've got a fat bank account and you're healthy and everybody loves you, everybody goes out the door and talks about what a great preacher you are. You best since we, well, you, you best since preacher we ever heard. It's when everybody's whining and rocking and complaining. It's when things are tough, when you're broke and sick and tired and sick and tired of being sick and tired. Those are the times that God can produce endurance in your life. Remember that trials, suffering, pain is dispensed by a loving Father who wants to develop character in our lives. God is promoting our salvation in the trials and the sufferings of life. You don't, in, you don't get endurance or patience without going through trials. It is not difficult to trust the Lord when everything is going well. But will you endure by faith when life is hard? Will you trust God and submit to His mighty hand when you lose your job, when you're going through a hard time in your marriage, when your children have strayed from the Lord, when you're diagnosed with a serious illness, or when a loved one dies? Will you rejoice in suffering knowing, knowing that a sovereign God allowed this to come into your life in order that He might produce endurance in you? And then endurance produces character. The word character in the Greek means something that has passed the test. Something that has been approved. When you go through a trial trusting in God, your faith is proven. You've been through the test and you have passed. And you know by experience that you can lean on His faithfulness. It proves that you're not just a flash-in-the-pan Christian. You're not one that the seed falls uh, on the stony ground. That when persecution or trial comes, you wilt and fade away. And then he says character produces hope. That brings us back full circle to verse 2 where he says, We've been justified by faith and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Same word. Same hope. But now it's stronger. Initial hope 
comes from understanding the blessing of being justified by faith. We begin the Christian life full of faith and hope. Then we get hit by difficult trials. Suffering comes. Pain comes. And we cling to God. And we hold on like we've never held on before. We prove His faithfulness. And He produces character in us as we endure. We come out on the other side more certain of eternal glory than we ever have been before. Our hope is stronger because it has been tempered in the flames of affliction, of suffering, and of grief. Rejoicing in trials means that we must focus on the hope of heaven. Our hope is not in a trouble-free life. Our hope is not in a life where we always get the best parking place at the airport, where we live in mansions and drive fancy cars. That's not our hope. Our hope is in heaven, a glorious, trouble-free eternity. I've told you before, but listen to me carefully. If you are living your best life now, you are going to hell. You got that? We live in a fallen world where suffering and trials and pain and grief are a given. How are you going to respond to them? To rejoice in our present trials, we have to keep our focus on the hope of the glory of God that we will experience in heaven. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decayed, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Paul could maintain hope and not lose heart in what he called momentary light affliction. And you read all that Paul went through, I'm not sure how to describe it that way. But his focus was on the eternal hope of heaven. Sometimes I, I hear a critic somewhere will say, Oh, Christianity is just, is just pie in the sky when you die, by and by. Well, the answer to that is by and by, you're going to die. You want pie with it or not? Because you are going to die. Your decaying outer man, your graying and thinning hair, your failing eyesight, the fact that you don't hear too well, the fact that you can't remember things much anymore. All of that is sending a message to the brain that doesn't remember anything anymore. You are going to die going to die. I'm going to die. There's no doubt about it. The old must die. The young may die. And either you have the hope of heaven because you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the, for the forgiveness of sin or you have no hope. And the only way to rejoice in trials is to develop and remember the sure hope of heaven. 
it is certain because it is based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And He has promised to return to take us with Him. And He says, and hope does not put to shame. Literally, hope does not make us ashamed. The phrase there is rooted in the Old Testament. Psalm 22, the psalmist in great distress cries out, In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. That last phrase is literally, they were not put to shame. In Psalm 23 or 25, 3, David proclaims, Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. The idea is, if you trust in God and He fails, you're going to be put to shame. Others will mock. They'll say, oh look, they trusted in God. God didn't come through. What a joke. There's no reality in trusting God. Keep in mind that Psalm 22 is a picture of death on the cross. Remember what happened on the cross when Jesus hung there? They mocked. They gloated. Oh, he said, he's, he's God. Let him come down from that cross. They made, they made fun of him. Sometimes God permits his children to go through terrible suffering, even martyrdom, death. They're only vindicated in the final resurrection. But in the resurrection... We will be vindicated. So if heaven is not true, we will be put to eternal shame. We will be eternally disappointed. But if heaven is real, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees it, then even if we suffer persecution and a martyr's death, our hope will not disappoint us. It will not put us to shame. We will wear the victor's crown throughout all of eternity. I remember reading the story of martyrs who died in the second century and of two men who were dragged to the stake. One of them was blind and the other was lame. He was crippled. He had a crutch. And as they tied them to the stake, as they laid the, the wood around as they lit the fire, the lame Christian took his crutch and he threw it as far as he could into the crowd. He turned to his companion and he said, Take courage, brother. This fire is going to cure us both. Listen, the fires of affliction will cure us all because we have the hope of eternal life and we will not be disappointed. And God's love has been poured into our hearts. That's the reason hope does not disappoint. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God's love for us. Paul didn't see suffering as an indication that God does not love us. Quite contrary to that. At the end of Romans 8, he will say that neither tribulation or distress or persecution or famine famine, our nakedness, our peril, our sword, our nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you are in the midst of suffering and trial and pain, keep your focus on God's love 
and you can rejoice in your trials. Paul says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The words poured into indicates past action with continuing results, which especially points to the great love of God that we experience after we are saved. The Holy Spirit is given to us, poured into, indicates an abundant supply of love, refreshing and sustaining us in the midst of our trials. The experience of God's love comes to us as we meditate on the amazing truths of the gospel. The Father gave His eternal Son, and He willingly took that punishment that we deserve so that God could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Listen, if you want to rejoice in suffering, keep your mind on the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not just for the moment you are saved, it is for forever. I wonder when we sing the songs like we sung this morning, do you marvel? Do you marvel at the fact that God has saved you? We're saying this morning, I am so wondrously saved from sin. What? Is that not wondrous? I'm saved from sin. Jesus Christ has saved me from eternal condemnation. <laughs> I was preparing another sermon the other day and I, I was reading again about Paul's trial at Caesarea. And there's a man named Tertullus that comes and he's a great orator and he flatters Felix, you remember? And, and then he says something that's a little odd. He said, this Paul is a plague. One translation says a pestilent. One says a pest. I remember many, many years ago hearing an old country preacher saying, listen, brethren, Christianity's like a plague. And old Paul had about a bad a case of it as anybody I ever know of. Ain't that the truth? We all ought to have a bad case of it. We ought to never, ever, ever, ever get over the glorious truth that God has saved us from our sins. That we possess eternal life and that we are bound for glory. What, what better news could there be? So we suffer for a few years here. Okay. Eternity is a whole lot longer than a few years here. Charles Wesley put it very well, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Don't ever get over the wonder of it. If I was one of those preachers like Craig Dale and I could sing right now, I'd burst into, I was lost and undone without God or His Son when He reached down His hand for me. Whoa! Glory. Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you keep my word, if they keep my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake.
because they do not know the one who sent me. Let me ask you a question. All of the suffering and the pain that Jesus Christ endured, did that mean that God didn't love him? Well, according to the preaching of the prosperity gospel, it would. Because if he'd been in the will of God and had enough faith, he wouldn't have suffered like that. I, I am always astounded at these men. And I, and I think, obviously, you never, ever, ever looked at the cross. Ever. Or you never studied the life of the Apostle Paul? Are you never read any church history about what happened to the apostles? And yet you think somehow you're to go through life without trouble. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce tells a story in his commentary on Romans uh, on these verses about how the church in China had such tremendous growth when there was such terrible persecution under under the communists. And an American student was going to study in mainland China. And a friend of him asked the question, if God loves the church in China so much, why have they suffered so much? And the student had no answer. But after he traveled to China, after he communed with the believers there, he came back to America and he asked his friend this question. If God loved the American church so much, why are we not suffering like the church in China? It's a good question. Because trials are not to harm us. Rather, God uses them to shape us into the image of Christ. He uses them to strengthen our hope of heaven. Let me ask you a question. What good would the promise of no more tears be to someone who'd never cried? Of what value would be a promise of no more death if you'd never suffered the death of a loved one? If you never knew what it was like to stand and weep over a child or a mother or a father or a wife or a husband? Then what, of what value would be there to say to you there'll be no more death, no more pain, no more sorrow? We rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character, hope. And hope we'll never have to be ashamed of because the love of God is poured into our heart by the Holy Spirit. Listen, suffering and grief and pain are a part of those all things. You remember all things? Now we know that all things work together for good to them that love God who are the called according to His purpose. That's a part of the all things. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank You for...